I bet you the better astronauts on each trip died. Maddox was probably ten times more brilliant than Brent. And the other guys who died. There was a podcast called the Sequel Cast. They talked about movies. And they talked about something else called boobies. The Sequel Cast. Hello and welcome to the sequel cast. This is a podcast where we talk about movies in a franchise, one movie at a time. I am your host, uh, Uncle Milkshake. You can check out our website at www.sequelcast.com, follow the Twitter feed at twitter.com slash sequelcast, or send us an email at sequelcast at gmail.com. I'm your host, Uncle Milkshake, and with me is Thrasher. Howdy. And Skipper Maddox. Skipper Maddox. And we're in the midst of a Planet of the Apes series of episodes, and we are currently going to cover the second film in the franchise, Beneath the Planet of the Apes. A few basic facts on it. It was released in 1970. It was directed by Ted Post, and... Written by Paul Dean, Den, based on a, a story by Paul Den and Mort Abrahams, and it stars James Fran- it stars Charlton Heston, James Franciscus, Kim Hunter, and Linda Harrison. I wouldn't say that it stars Charlton Heston. I wouldn't well, say that. And when Charlton Heston demands star billing, he gets star billing. No, no matter. He has about ten minutes of screen time. He didn't demand star billing. He did. He actually demanded that his character be killed in the opening credits. Well, he I don't want to. He did not want to do this movie. And if you well, squint, suspect- when you look at James Franciscus, he looks a lot like Charlton Heston. I think in the way they have him look in this picture. Well, this was clearly written with Heston in mind. I think he wanted to avoid typecasting and didn't want to get trapped in these movies forever, as uh, Rodney McDowell would eventually become. So he wisely said. Okay, you'll get one more out of me. Well, did Ronnie McDowell hate doing these movies? I mean, he was involved in the franchise for... You know what? Not that I heard. Like some time I, in the I, TV show, the live-action show. Was such a nice guy. I've never heard of him, like, hating anything. No, I'm not aware that he has any further involvement in the series after this. Oh, Jordan yeah. Heston. No, no. Well, well he has a cameo in the new Planet of the Apes movie. Ah, that doesn't count. Because, again, I don't think that we should do that movie. Well, uh, well, you know what? We should have a whole episode that's just us discussing whether or not we should do that movie. Mm. That could work as the last episode in the, ser- in, uh, the Planet of the Apes series of episodes. <laughs> With the bonus episode where we actually do or do not. Uh, I don't... I think something arguing about that movie could be pretty amusing, but that's for a later time. Uh... So this Beneath the Planet of the Apes takes place right after Planet of the Apes. And we mean right after. Oh, yeah, yeah. Some might even say during. And one thing I've noticed about some of the other later Planet of the Apes sequels, they try to experiment with different genres. But with this one, at least, the second one, it's a pretty similar genre and tone as the original. It doesn't it doesn't try to be a political comedy or a um, social satire. Or, you know, drama like some of the other ones are. 
I think it definitely makes a comment on humanity, religion, and the military complex. That's quite true. Mm. It does, but it's that same setting and mostly the same cast of characters from the first film. Yeah, we see Taylor, we see Nova, played by Linda Harrison. Um, We see Zira. We see Dr. Zayas. Uh, We're introduced to General Ursus, played by James Gregory. Actually, it was supposed to be played by uh, Marlon Brando, supposedly. You think they would have been able to afford to get him? He but, would have made demands about the other people in casting. It would have been great to see Brando as Nape. Oh, I'm sorry, not Brando. I meant Orson Welles. Oh! That's uh, totally he, different. That's totally different. Well, they're Orson both very stuff. large men. Yeah, I'm sorry. I get not my fat guys stuff. But he, was by, he was replaced by James Gregory. Um... The, uh, the famous line, the only thing that counts in the end is power. Naked, merciless force. Uh, let's hear your Orson Welles do that. The only thing that matters in the end is power. Naked, ruthless force. Yes. Oh, that works. That's perfect. You know, I was going through my DVDs the other day, and I have a DVD of uh, Revenge of the Nerds, and the trailer for that was narrated by Orson Welles. It's quite strange. Was, was it really Orson that? Welles, or was it Paul Freese doing his Orson Welles impersonation? No, it was really Orson Welles. As Interesting. As, as far as I know. Uh, some weird... Well, he did a lot of voiceover work, yeah. massively, at the end of his career. End of his life, really. Yes, always. Mm. Well, let's talk a little bit about this movie, which, for the first ten minutes rehashes everything we learned in Planet of the Apes. All the way up to the damn you, damn you all to hell. Exactly. It has the reading of the scrolls showing us, hey, monkeys and man together on a beach. And then it shows us uh, the Statue of Liberty saying us, oh God, it's Earth. If you didn't see the first one, you don't really understand what's happening, but they try to give you a little uh, precursor saying, here, this is what happened. And then somebody blew it up. They all blew it up. They, they give you cliff notes for Planet of the Apes. Do you think they do a good job with that summary? I would say so. I, I mean, it, it sort of it brings you right in and it puts you in that Planet of the Apes mindset. Going into it cold probably would have been inappropriate. Would have been pretty confusing, I think. Although, I mean, with the way the first movie ends, like, where the hell do you go from there? That must have been difficult of them to think of what to do for a sequel. But they did come up with some great ideas. You have them riding on a, a horse. I think if you had two humans riding on a horse, it'd be fine. And then those horrible special effects of lightning, whatever the hell that was. I kind of like that. I don't know. It... I didn't. Why did you have... You didn't have to have it. Well, Jason, it's... have you ever seen a telepathic illusion? That's exactly what they look like. They look like chroma key. <laughs> it, I, I just liked it. It just made it seem a bit more alien and weird, but I mean, you, you still have the pretty weird landscapes, perhaps maybe not as much as the original film, but it just mm. adds to the mood that something weird is going to happen with all these lightning bolts. You know what? I hate, I hate telepathy as a future, as a, as a future signifier. We're in the future because people can talk with their minds. Well, well no, we, we know it's in the future because all human civilization has collapsed and apes have evolved to take man's place. That's true. But maybe maybe we should discuss where these telepathic powers are coming from. 
They are coming from the subterranean civilization of the mutants of Manhattan Island. Elsewhere in the Forbidden Zone. Yeah, in this, in this film we find out that the apes and the degenerate humans aren't the only people on this planet. Uh, living in and un- living uh, in the old subway tunnels and, and, and cities that were builded, that were buried under atomic ash, we find out that there's a whole civilization of highly intelligent mutants descended from human survivors of the nuclear war. And that not only have they evolved greater intelligence and presumably some resistance to the horrible conditions in which they were forced to live, they have also developed telepathic powers, the ability to communicate mentally, uh, mental domination, and the ability to, to project illusions into the minds of whole groups. And well, the ancestors of these mutants actually are uh, the villains as well in the Battle for the Planet of the Apes. But Very true. We don't know that until the, uh, the fifth sure, movie. Sure. They talk a lot about it. Um, and then again, it has to do with the the thing that they worship. Let's not talk about that yet. Okay. Let's well, they, they have to have a religion. What were Good. you going to say? Uh, what's your well, name? there's something really interesting, but I want to keep it. I want to keep it. I want to talk a little bit about Brent and Maddox. Sure. So the beginning, as we said, takes place right after the end of the first one. Charlton Heston and uh, Linda Harrison are on a horse together. Is all this weird shit happens, and there's a there's a crevice that he falls down. He falls out a crevice. Meanwhile, a Nova is alone, and she can't. She doesn't speak English, or does she? Does she, she doesn't speak, speak anything. Yeah. And she's she's basically an animal on this on this in this world. She what is a puny man animal. A gorgeous <laughs> animal. My problem my problem also with this movie is the book. It's a completely different planet. Humans did exist at one point, and then apes took over. Very much like you'll see in the next movies. On this one, it is Earth, so whatever they did as mankind destroyed them and let apes rule. Because of this, you have... uh, I don't know, I, I think you lose the comparison to our own planet and just say, hey, it is our planet. Well, no, I don't think you lose the comparison at all, because it's not about comparing the planet. It's about comparing the people who live on that planet. But at the same time, Asoror, which is supposed to be the other planet that uh, uh, Ulis goes to in the book, it is supposed it means sister. So it is supposed to be a mirror of our planet and what might happen. And then, of course, the end of the book, it does happen. In this one, it's not saying it might happen. It's saying it happened, but it could happen into our world. No, I don't know where I'm going with that. Let's talk about Brent. Okay. There's another astronaut. Charlton Heston out of the way. We need another. We need another intelligent 20th century male to carry us through. Talk and he's attractive. But that's the main problem with this movie: is Charlton Heston is such a weird uh, charisma that you take him out of the picture and you replace him with this Brent character played by James Franciscus who looks yeah, but just... Yeah, keep Linda Harrison. You keep Linda Harrison, but uh, this guy Brent, he looks just like Charlton Heston, like a younger version, but his acting just seems really flat and it just feels like you're watching a knockoff uh, take on the first film in some ways. Well, also, remember, his character, who came from Earth as well, as part of a search party for Taylor and his crew... 
they're stranded in the far future because there's they didn't hit water they hit land so brent lives the skipper maddox dies they he finds uh he finds nova who doesn't speak he doesn't understand that she doesn't speak he tries to like get her to realize that he's looking for taylor she has the metal id tag he hasn't been through this experience of finding out that he's on an ape planet very true or a wild west planet well well, i got or a gangster world well i i did have one one, i guess issue that i guess i guess i'm gonna have to bring up whatever did the space agency that these people work for did they never intend for any of their craft to be able to land it hits water it sinks it hits land and falls apart were they were they honestly expecting these people to go anywhere or let's just fire them into space see what happens don't worry about bringing them back well in addition how much fuel did these spaceships really have well, remember, this was back in the days of massive multi-stage rockets. I mean, what we're seeing is probably the very front end of what was a many meters long multi-stage rocket. And how do they get back home is the question. Who knows? Well, I mean, book in the book, in the book, they're shuttlecraft, which are able to uh, land and um, land and launch basically from anywhere. But of course, in the book, the uh, man, the men who they find, tear it to pieces. The one that I see in this movie, it's like the, it's like an arrow point. It looks like, yeah, it had to be part of something. No, it doesn't look like anything. It looks like they made all their ships the same way, just a big sharp object to launch through space, like a full plane. What if they sent their worst astronauts out on these space missions, knowing that they'd never come back? No, you know. What the well, then why send a rescue party? Why rescue your least important astronaut? Because it's a cover. You're like, oh, it's a rescue party, but really, you're just a crappy astronaut. We're gonna send you out uh, to die in space. I bet you, I bet you, the better astronauts on each trip died. Maddox was probably ten times more brilliant than Brent, and the other guys who died <laughs> were ten times smarter than Charlton Heston Taylor. And the person who was, like, freeze-dried in the cryo-chamber in the first film must have been the greatest scientist who ever lived. So, he wasn't so really, freeze-dried. He was, he was just a statue. He was stuffed. It's a museum. Oh, wait, no. What? The girl. The girl was supposed to be brilliant. Yeah. Well, you know what else occurs to me? That, that, the, uh, that the ship... That there, there must be somewhere in the Van Allen belt, there must be an ancient gypsy curse. And that's why these missions keep going wrong. Yes. <coughs> I love that. Excuse me. But, but but here's the thing is, Taylor told Nova to find Zira. And she found Brent. But of course, she doesn't really understand anything. She doesn't really... I don't know why she actually takes the order. I guess maybe Taylor was able to train her a little bit. I remember Zura was the uh, female ape played by Kim Hunter, who's a scientist. And Cornelius, uh, who in this movie is played by David Watson, uh, because Roddy McDowell was actually doing another movie in Ireland. Now, could you tell Uh, the difference? I mean, Cornelius has a pretty limited role in this movie. That's very true. You really don't, because most of the talking is done in... um, the rehash from Planet of the Apes, which is just, it's just um, footage from the other movie. 
So Roddy McDowell has, I think he actually talks more on that than in the parts with um, Zira and Cornelius. Zira takes more fun than that. So maybe that's but why you can they... really tell it's not McDowell. Mm. Maybe that's why they minimize the speaking parts for Cornelius in this one, since Roddy McDowell wasn't in it. He's got a very distinct voice. Yes. So, but you're right. You mentioned he's uh, Nova's supposed to get Zira, but instead she stumbles upon um, Brent. So, but she could be lost. I mean, they are kind of in the middle of nowhere. Although I guess in she, the forbidden zone, she would think she could just walk in the opposite direction. To uh, maybe the horse knows the way. Maybe the horse is smarter. The future horses are smarter. The horses can the smell horse. humans and have human detectors. Mm. And actors and makeup. Boy, is horse. They actually able to get. They're able to get back to the ape city. I just like the idea of Ape City. It reminds me of Bear City. <laughs> bear City. Bear, Bear City. You know what it reminds me of? The actual bears. Uh, the actual. The actual Ape City from DC Comics. Oh, uh, no, that, that was, was it called Ape City. I thought it was, or, or like, or Ape Metropolis, or something, or Ape Ape Tropolis. Was that a comic no. book, or what was? No, it's part of the had... DC setting. Flash had friends in Gorilla City. It was Gorilla it's City. Gorilla City. Gorilla City oh. is the is the is the city of apes in DC Universe. One of his one of his enemies was Gorilla Grodd, a <laughs> ape capable of mental uh, mental control, uh, telepathy, uh, vicious telepathy. Actually, it was like he was he would like bite on your brain. Um, but yeah, one of the one of the many Flash rogues. Well, let's talk about gorillas, because at the ape city, there's a huge delegation of apes, of, of gorillas, gorillas, and addressing the crowd gorilla. gorilla, gorilla, is, that's the word for the day, kids, gorilla, general, <laughs> addressing the crowd is General Ursus, played by James Gregory. I will say, like, I like this scene. I, I love, I love, you know, how he's he's trying to rally people to his cause. His cause being to to invade the Forbidden Zone and whatnot. And he's really effective. He really, he really kind of comes off as as this as this this great military leader, but also as a tyrant at the same time. But the the only thing I don't like about this scene is almost all the background apes. They're just wearing ape masks. They're not articulated. So when they get up to cheer, their bodies are all like, yes, yes, here, here, ah, apes, apes. But then their faces don't move at all. This again has to do with budgetary reasons. Uh, with each of the oh, Planet of, of the Apes uh, sequels, at least with these original uh, 60s and 70s movies, the budget gets progressively lower and lower with each film. And uh, you can really tell it with the extras in this movie. But you know what's really hot in this? Dr. Zaius and General Ursus in the steam baths. <laughs> right. Well, they're actual apes that no, do no. bathe in hot springs. Yes, but, but the idea that they have, like, wooden planks and they have coal, <laughs> and because of the costumes and the makeup, they don't actually have steam. They have it chroma keyed in. So it looks like they're in a room full of smoke, but it's not convincing. In the you think they could have used smoke in place of steam, but but you know What's sometimes an orangutan little... just wants to go in and have a schmitz. Again, it's, it's brilliant how like baboons and and other uh, apes are actually able to use uh, hot springs. I, I think that's that's brilliant. 
I mean, they're the really first so leisure bad. animals. Exactly. What about dolphins? Or are we like them? Ooh. Well, they have sex for fun. Mm-hmm. And they have blowholes. Oh, uh, here we go. Uh, what the hell are you talking about? Dolphins have blowholes. Gorillas don't have blowholes. No, I was talking about dolphins. I thought you were still talking about... Well, I thought well, dolphins really... had sex for fun. Do gorillas have sex for fun, too? Am I missing something? No, I think they do it to assert dominance. Uh, but I was going to say... Pay uh, females. So they have prostitution. Also, dolphins are the apes of the sea. <laughs> As opposed to hawks, who are the lobsters of the air. Yes, that uh, that I'll agree with. Um, I mean, imagine what if they did a Planet of the Apes movie where instead of apes, they were just dolphins walking around, bipedal dolphins. That was an episode of The Simpsons Treehouse of Horror. Was it? Yep. Yes, it were was. dolphins? The dolphins. Lisa freed a dolphin. It was like Free Willy. Lisa freed a dolphin from a a water park. And then the dolphin turned out it was a long-lost dolphin prince. Told his dolphin family about his incarceration <laughs> on the surface. So the the dolphins marched and took the land and banished humans to the sea. Oh, that's right. I, seen that. I like how we're talking about so much more than just the movie. Because really, it, you have it, to. It's going to be another one. It's going to be another one of those Caddyshack two episodes. Yeah. I didn't really like this movie. I I couldn't get into it. I agree. I, really, I, I think. Beneath the Planet of the Apes is one of the uh, lesser sequels. It gets a bit more interesting uh, halfway through where they go um, underneath underground and see the yeah. former Manhattan. Well, you know what? Let's just let's just go ahead to this because we only see a little bit of of Ape City. We're forced to see Brent get captured and be put into the stocks and stuff. And of course, Zira, who doesn't like any of this talk about war and such, who really disagrees with General Ursus, she helps Brent and Nova get away. And, and Brent and Nova escape back to the Forbidden Zone, even though all the monkeys, all the apes are going to be there in like an hour to take it over anyway. Well, obviously, that's when the movie really picks up for me. That's when I start to really enjoy the movie. The first half is just a, a lengthy preamble for the second half where it really starts to move. The first half seems to just rehash the first movie and sort of reintroduce you to these characters, but it doesn't <coughs> advance uh, the plot as much. But when they go underground, just the visual of just the rubble of what used to be the subway stations, I think is really and, interesting. And that's what I love. It's like it's like we talked about last episode, how you realize that not only is it Earth, but this whole thing's been taking place on what's left of Manhattan Island. And this film really goes, like, really pays that off. You see the New York subway system. You see Manhattan landmarks uh, buried beneath what is now the surface of the Earth. And it's really, it's really chilling. You know, when you see something you recognize after it's been buried in radioactive ash for millennia. But didn't we already see that with the Statue of Liberty? Do we really have to see Queensboro Plaza? Do we really have to see uh, the subway? I mean... Yeah, it's underground, we get that. Well, I think it does serve a better purpose, because by seeing the underground remains of New York, we don't have to sit through any boring explanations of how the mutants live. The mutants live in the carcass of New York. That's all we need to know. I agree, And Jason, just seeing those landmarks tells us this. I agree, Jason. It is kind of a rehash of the concept of the uh, Statue of Liberty, 
but still it's a really interesting visual and um, I had mentioned before how the, uh, I hadn't seen the Planet of the Apes movies until I was in high school but before that I was in middle school and on Sci-Fi Channel I saw uh, some of the Planet of the Apes animated series and there's an episode of that where it redoes the same sequence from beneath Planet of the Apes where they see the uh, Queensboro Plaza as part of the underground oh well, see, and then a bunch of other stuff that shouldn't be underground is underground. But let's talk a little bit about the mutants. Um, I want to talk about the humming sound, which if you can find a noise clip of that, that should just be the entire, we should just do the entire uh, commentary about that. Just have that well, we should, commentary. We'll do the whole episode telepathically. <laughs> They're in my mind! I like that there's mutants because it shows that there's not just one group of humans uh, natively on this planet that are just stupid and can't speak and are like cavemen, basically. (laughs) They're not stupid, they're regressed. Whereas these ones have progressed or evolved. Well, you know, I would say they've developed, but they've developed perpendicular to to human like if we can imagine human progress as a line uh, that moves you know from the past and the future what have you and you know the idea being we start as cave dwellers and keep advancing into I don't know star children let's say um, sometime in the late twentieth early twenty first century when the nuclear war happened uh, the people who stayed on the surface and became savages they moved backwards along that line but the mutants they went perpendicular to that line. Because you know they have not only do they have their intelligence, it, it's entirely possible they may very well be, in general, smarter, more more cognitive than than your typical modern human, and they have developed these uh, these phenomenal mental powers, but their society appears to be totally stagnated. They do nothing with these with these powers other than keep the apes from entering the forbidden zone. They live in complete isolation, and as far as we know, all they do is is they're born, they live, they they worship in their own peculiar way, and then they die with absolutely no consequence. It's a society that is going nowhere. It's been going perpendicular for so long, it's lost any chance it has of going forward. How do they run across the mutants in this uh, underground catacombs? Well, basically, he hears the buzzing, they get into his head, and at one point he actually tries to drown Nova in a, a natural spring, which at one time must have been a beautiful fountain. But as they go deeper, they, they hear the farming sound. He almost kills her, and he to resist it, he enters these two doors and then finds a bunch of guys, which, funny enough, the doors are supposed to be the remains of St. Patrick's Cathedral. And if you notice, it's an upside-down cross. Now, they're not Satan worshippers. Hmm. Oh, no. Also, um, the upside-down cross represents what they do worship, which is really, really cool. They're parapsychically endowed human beings which kneel before a high altar reciting a hymn to an intercontinental ballistic tactical nuclear missile. Mm -hmm. And it's actually called the Alpha and Omega Bomb. 
It is the ultimate deterrent and apparently did not get used in the war. Or at least this particular one didn't get used in the war. Uh, it's entirely possible that there were hundreds of these flying through the air in the war that ended the old human civilization, and this one just somehow survived. But see, they call it a weapon of peace. Well, well think, think about that, though. That ties in to, to some of, a lot of the concepts that guided the development of the American and Soviet nuclear arsenals. The idea that just by having giant nuclear arsenals, you couldn't have a nuclear war because of the principle of mutually assured destruction. Uh, that's probably where that concept comes from. Now, they might not know that. They might just assume that by having the bomb around, war becomes impossible, not realizing that what, what when the bomb was made, what was supposed to make war impossible was the fact that the other side would have them too, and no side would ever be desperate or crazy enough to launch, because it means the other side would have to launch to retaliate. I just think it's really uh, interesting that there hasn't been another huge nuclear bomb launched uh, since um, World War II, since the U.S. did it on Japan. Well, well to be fair, that bomb wasn't launched. That was dropped. Well, dropped. Okay, well, dropped. That's actually funny that you mentioned that. One of the mutants... Yes, yes. The, the, the nuclear bombs are funny when they're used. <clears throat> but no, it's not funny. It's not funny in that way. I know, I know. But the A-bombs were, one of them was called Fat Man, and what was the other one called? Little Boy. Little Boy, yeah. And one of the mutants is also called Fat Man. And then also I'd like to talk about a little a little known fact about one of the mutants. Um, oh, yeah. Okay. Don Pedro Colley, who is the African-American mutant, which I don't see many of them in the congregation. I'm not sure if I actually saw any except for him. His character in the credits is labeled, or is given the name Negro. Wow. I mean, this was 1970. But, but I've seen references to his name actually being Ongaro. O-N-G-A-R-O. Well, you know, it's, it's entirely... Well, actually, uh, Maddox, when you were watching this film, were you watching it on DVD? Yes, I was. Yep. Because what what's possible, because interestingly enough, the, the Internet Movie Database has him credited as the mutant Negro, but and, and Wikipedia has the other name, Ongaro. It's entirely possible that when this film was brought over to TV, at some point somebody realized that was pretty embarrassing and changed it in the credit sequence for the TV version, because very often the TV version will be different, edited for... Edited for you know, to fit the screen format, edited for time, edited for content. That change could have been made. Now, your DVD possibly being taken from the original film negative would have the original credit sequence intact with the old name. Well, but yeah, that really is pretty embarrassing. Did you know there's an the official? Bo did you know there's an official Don Predro Kali website? What? Yes. Contact Sweet. information and everything. We ought to give that out to our listeners. Um, okay, it's, uh, it also shows he played a, a part in, uh, the, uh, George Lucas film TH11, THX 1138. That's indeed very true. And, um, it's a www.donpedrocolley, that's, uh, D-O-N-P-E-D-R-O-C-O-L-L-E-Y.com. We'll take you oh, to you know who we, his site. You know who he played in THX 1138? He played SRT. Oh, okay. I haven't seen that film in a while, but 
you can buy autographed photos of him from his website and see his big uh, filmography. And I don't think it would be a wise idea for us to try and call him now and say, how was it playing the Negro mutant? Well, you never know. For all, for all we know, he has a sense of humor about it. It would be the mutant Negro. It's, what's, it's, it's, what's the difference? Well, one has uh, a possibility. Well, once again, the other members of the sequel cast do not speak for me. <laughs> oh, hey! He was also in Zombies of Sugar Hill in 1978. An AIP what? film. Huh? Yeah. And he was in The Legend of, of, legend of yeah. Nigger Charlie, so there's that. Jeez. Wow, I wonder if that's like a, a... I'm betting that's a black exploitation. With that title, it almost has to be. Yeah. But it could be a horror-based one, which would be... It actually sounds pretty cool. Yeah. I'm not... It had a sequel. But actually, it's that... Um, It's Agaru or Negro. It's under his telepathic control that Brent is forced to fight Taylor when they're reunited. Um, that's a pretty cool scene. It's it's not a great fight at all. It's not a great scene. It's not. I like the idea behind it, though. It it's like you're seeing Charlton Heston fight a younger, skinnier version of himself. <laughs> you know what it's like? It's like when Superman fought himself in the junkyard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In Superman three. <laughs> not like that. Oh man, it's not like that at all. Oh. <laughs> and then Taylor oh. is told about the missile. It calls it the Doomsday Bomb. My God! It will destroy the entire planet, and it truly is a weapon of peace. Speaking let's of, let's keep bringing that up because technically, if 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 we continue with what Obama is 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 planning, then I I don't think that this movie is plausible. If well, we continue, I, I don't think you can ever fully get rid of nuclear weapons altogether. However nice the sentiment might be, before this podcast degenerates into a uh, political screen table, uh, I, I do feel I need to say that it is not the purpose or goal of science fiction to predict the future. Science fiction has never been about predicting the future. It is about, among other things, the impact of the future and the impact the present will have on the future. This movie is about in, in a number of ways, impacts of certain things which were happening in the 1970s and 70s, extrapolated into the future. Things have changed since the 70s. There are different pressures and different conflicts. So if if this if you were to make a movie like this today, it would deal with different themes. We, we can't be chronocentrist when looking at, at these kinds of movies. We have to realize the world in which they were made to understand their context. I completely agree with you. And at the time, I mean, think about how we felt with the Cold War and how we felt about our, our bombs. Hey, but let's talk about let's talk about when everything goes ape shit. Oh. <laughs> oh I see what you did there. Speaking of Charlton Heston, uh, last night I watched part of the best best of Phil Hartman on SNL DVD. Oh and yeah. It has a, a clip from a sketch where Phil Hartman plays Charlton Heston reading a audiobook version of Madonna's book, Sex. Oh, God, oh, yes. yes. With Danny DeVito and I. Get my vagina. Yeah, but sadly, they only play the first, like, 30 seconds of the sketch. Because on, uh, <laughs> on those compilation that? DVDs, they will do, like, little quick hits for um, some of the sketches. 
That sucks because there's there's some really good audio engineering jokes in that sketch. We you know whose vagina you don't get to see in this movie. Anyone? Charlton Heston's. Oh God! Let's talk about when the apes get there, and everything goes bananas. Uh, <laughs> that one's better than ape shit, I think. Uh, well, apes, well, let's apes. just say that things go every which way but loose. Ooh, there you go. Because yeah. hey, there is a orangutan there. Uh, played by uh, Dr. Zayas. Yeah, Dr. Doc- Zayas played the orangutan part, yet again. So. Well, you realize that in Planet of the Apes, if that movie was made, it would be about a tough-as-nails orangutan detective teamed up with a human. Clyde! I want to see that movie. <laughs> so, yes. Dr. So, Zayas so, 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 and, and the gorillas go into this... Ursus and the ape part. army. After gunning down some some protesters, uh, enter the Forbidden Zone and lay siege to the the mutant subterranean civilization. Why are they entering there Zay- just to get the humans? The, the psychic uh, fire or whatever they're like shooting at them, like the illusions. Doctors, uh, Doctor seems to know way too much about these mutants. Like he's always known they've been there because he's always the fount of knowledge, saying, "Oh, yep, I knew they were here." Let's go through this. They're just—they've got mental powers. Let's go to feed. Well, them. he's read all the forbidden scrolls, and really, who knows how much information are in those scrolls? Mm-hmm. Very true. They could just be a whole bunch of things of how to keep the humans down. Now they're able to force their way into St. Patrick's, um, and they start to, like destroying the busts of Mendez. Which there's a whole thing like there's a whole thing about the cult of Mendez. And how it relates to the the fifth movie, but we'll talk about that when we get to it. Um, there's a whole thing like talking about the uh, the the cults, why they wear the head the headgear, and then also the bomb itself. That's all in five. But I think it's really important to uh, to mention that in the future they're able to make latex masks. Well, the mutants have a certain level of technology. Well, we didn't mention the scene, did we, where they see the mutants at their uh, church service worshipping the bomb, and they take off their um, mask to reveal their messed up It's it's revealed that these human faces we've been seeing are just masks, and they peel it back to reveal their horrible, veiny, muscle-exposed, mucusy mutant. Oh, you know the best part is... What do they say, like, we reveal our true self unto our God? The female is actually named... What was that? Because if she were a male, it would be Albino. But Albina is the female there. And she actually... She takes poison. She commits suicide rather than be shot down by the apes. And Dr. Zayas actually finds her corpse. um, And she still has her mask on. I think I think if she were truly truly religious, she would have taken her mask off and presented her true self to her god by dying and joining it in the afterlife or whatever actual pseudo religion they have. Well, well Maddox, Maddox, you really don't know anything about bombism. Uh, that's not what bombism is about. Let's go. Yeah. I'm not sane. I'm not an insane but, mutant with mental powers. I'm just a regular mutant who can talk. 
But that's the thing. The reason they don't take their their masks off, they do talk about that in their hymn, that they, they reveal their true self only unto the Lord. They only take those masks off in the presence of the bomb during the height of worship. And, and in a certain way, acknowledging the effects of, of what the bombs in the past have had on them. You know, they, they, in a way, their horrible mutations are the stigmata caused by their god. But would those mutations carry that far down the uh, timeline? Well, would generations, I, you know, I, admit, generations I don't know. disfigured people still look disfigured, or would they self-mutilate themselves to keep the look of their ancestors? I think being in the presence of that bomb... It could be that maybe there's a coming-of-age ritual where they're ritualistically subjected to radiation burns. On the other hand, you know, with all the fallout, you would get a number of weird skin cancers and mutations. It's just that after so many generations of breeding, that stuff would have leveled out, and eventually you you could possibly end up with that naturally scarred uh, skin tissue that they seem to have. And, of course, ultimately, I mean, there's so much time has passed between the apocalypse and beneath the planet of the apes. For all we know, at some point, they had access to genetic engineering technology and, and that their current appearance is, to a certain extent, engineered. You know, they alter their own DNA to compensate for the original mutations mm. and to give themselves a stable breeding population. But that's neither here nor there, really. So the end of the film, it's a big clusterfuck. The apes reach where the humans and mutants are. The Mendez is about to launch the bomb, really. At the time, Mendez is ready because he knows the apes were coming because he was able to get that information out of Brent. He's going to blow everything up again. Everything's going to get blown up again. But, Brent, hold on, I'm going to sneeze in a second. Oh, damn it. Hold on. I'm sorry, continue. Uh, Taylor and Brett arrive just in time to see this. Mendez is gunned down by the apes, but he's able to push two of the rods in, which the rods look like, if they were a little more crystalline, they'd be from Superman. Well, they could be decorative. Yeah, it's weird because they have the little stones on them. They have three different types of kryptonite. Uh, red, green, and yellow. But what's really funny is is they're all freaked out because Mendez can talk. And again, they've only seen how many talking humans? One, and that's only if they saw the first movie. <laughs> <laughs> but then, of course, Taylor gets Taylor gets shot up. Then Brent gets shot up. So we're like. Okay, how is this going to end? I mean, this is a pretty... This ending is about as dark as you can get, frankly. Yeah, it's, Brent... It's, it's almost Day the Clown Cried dark. Oh my god, it's... it's it's. But he's able to kill General Ursus, so, I mean, we have all these gorillas being killed, we then have our, our stars being killed, and then Taylor gets up and actually confronts Dr. Zayas. He's bleeding to death. He's definitely mortally wounded. He asks Dr. Zayas for help, even though everything that happened in the first movie and everything that's happened since, and he thinks Dr. Zayas is going to help him? You ask me to help you? Man is evil, capable of nothing but destruction. I mean, he, 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 and then he gets, he gets murdered. He gets 
completely killed. His last words, you bloody bastard. He dies with his outstretched hand on the control switch, triggering the bomb. Yet you don't see a huge explosion. It just fades to white. You get a rumble, a fade to white, and then, and then in one of the countless billions of galaxies in the universe lies a medium-sized star, and one of its satellites, a green and insignificant planet, is now dead. Now, who voiced that? Paul Fries. Really? Hmm. Yep. Who was also in uh, both The Hobbit and Return of the King. Again, our connection. He's in everything. But again, the movie... It just ends that way, and then you see the credits, which had, like, seven names on it. Well, I would movie... say that that last line, doesn't that sound like something taken right out of a Stan Lee, Jack Kirby comic book? It just makes me think of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Because <laughs> uh... doesn't Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy re- refer to Earth as a green and insignificant planet or something along those lines? Yeah, it's small, insignificant blue-green planet. Right, right. And the so, western spiral arm of the galaxy. Yeah, I guess the only real difference is that when, when they blow up planets in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, it's it's planetary destruction, a slapstick. Uh, but when we see it in Beneath the Planet of the Apes, it is it is uh, uh, it is euthanasia. It is planetary euthanasia. Yeah, there's no the, brood. World, there's no brilliant the world is diseased no there is no future for man there is no future for ape there is no future for mutant best to let the patient die well in the ending of this movie one of the people that helped uh, dream up this ending was Charlton Heston himself he said I'll do a sequel only if I'm not in it for that much and you kill me and he thought of this ending as a way to do it where there's no way they could possibly make a sequel uh, but then of course they did exactly I love how bold that is. I mean, I, I just Which can't imagine forces... what would it have been like to see this in the theater at the time and see this ending. It's like a Tarantino-style ending would... where a bunch of people get in the room and kill each other. It's uh, probably pretty intense. You know, it's like, what the hell? That's that's the ending? That's. I would have been pissed. Yeah, I can see that. I'm pissed I'm... now. <laughs> <laughs> but let's see, I think that's a really modern reaction to the film. I think at the time it probably would have felt pretty intense. I mean, we are very distant from the the nuclear age, but when this was made, people were living right in the middle of it. It very much resonated with people. I mean, this was the... We, we are post-nuclear. This was made during the age of the nuclear. Yeah, I mean... I think the last half of this film is, is far better than the first half. Agreed. And... Although, overall, it's not one of my favorite sequels in the series. I don't... Had it been the same story, and uh, Charlton Heston would have been the lead instead of James Franciscus, I think that might have helped it a bit. Yeah, but then you wouldn't have the character development. Well... What character development is there of um, Brent? Well, no, 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 because you wouldn't have the story. Why would Charlton Heston's character... Why would he go... Back to Ape City. Oh, to kill all the apes? I don't know. Well, possibly to tell to tell Zero what he's found. You know, maybe out of some sort of duty. You have to know the truth. Oh yeah, well, that could have been interesting. I don't know. 
I don't know how I feel about this movie. I I just want to go on to the next one. I I, I enjoy this film. Uh, I can find but, without ever seeing this film. But I will admit, it serves only to ensure that all the future sequels have uh, are vastly different from from the original film. It, it, I guess that's that's the real purpose that this film serves in the series. It's the dividing line between the Planet of the Apes and all the other movies. But I think that's good, though, because it forces the other sequels to get creative, because they can't use any of the original characters or settings, because they all blew up. Oh, I remembered what I was going to say. Uh, on the uh, Behind the Planet of the Apes documentary that covers all these films, on Beneath the Planet of the Apes, it mentions that uh, James Franciscus thought his character Brent was too much of a pussy in the original script, and he would frequently <laughs> rewrite his scenes right before filming to make his character more macho. Which, as bland as he is and his character is in the film, it just makes you wonder how bad it must have been before. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, just imagine, like, hey, Post, here's how we're doing this scene, dig. Well, I don't think James Franciscus was an especially a big name or ever was a huge name. What's he doing now? He's dead. <laughs> he yeah, was born in 61 and died in... Or, sorry, he was born in 34 died in 91. Don't we have this exchange every movie? Well, we do talk about older movies. There's bound to be some dead people in them. I know, just every movie. Yeah, what's he doing now? Oh, he died. <laughs> it's a real running gag. You'd think we were doing it on purpose, but we're not. We make all this up as we go. While researching it. I'm sorry, I gotta leave the room. Oh, Maddox... <laughs> oh wow! I'm really sorry to his family or his kids or whoever he. Oh God, whoever he left here. Oh. He left us with fond memories. Wow. No, because he didn't. Because I don't like the movie. <laughs> well, maybe not you. You know, I, I don't think James Franciscus is the worst thing I've ever, the worst acting I've ever seen. He's just really bland and flat and. Charlton it's Heston. Makes no impact on me whatsoever. Especially compared to Charlton Heston being in this movie, even as brief as. But even is. Charlton Heston in this, he gets the best freaking line. Oh yeah. And it's just, for how long? Five minutes. I don't know. Ten minutes. If you include the clips from the first movie at the beginning. You're right. Yeah. So. If you want to see more James Franciscus, check him out in uh, Marooned, which was also on the MST3K episode Space Travelers, and it was also in Doctor Livingston or Jonathan Livingston Seagull, and Valley of Guanji, a Ray Harryhausen classic. He's also been in several episodes of Hollywood Squares. So is should people sit next to Madam? So should people see Beneath the Planet of the Apes? Would you recommend this film? I say. Yes, if only for the ending or the last 30 minutes. It gets kind of interesting then. No, I just say skip it. Go to the next one. What what is so, I, what is the most offensive thing about this movie to you? It's not offensive as much as it doesn't help me at all with this story. It's like, I get it. They blew everything up. Oh, they're going to blow everything up again. It's a rehashing. Yep. Whereas I like, I like the third movie. I like... <coughs> I like well, it's a rehashing of things we never saw. It's a return to Ape City, or yeah, it's a return to Ape City. It's 
another thing. Oh, it's New York because they blow everything up, and here's some more blown up shit. Oh, and here's some mutants who survived and are mental powered. Tell us how you really feel. <laughs> <laughs> You're stopping so nice. Man, if I did, we'd get, we'd get, we'd get ladders. Well, I would say. I, I, I say I say see it. If you're Planet of the Apes completist, of course see it. Uh, it's not at all quite as bad as Maddox is describing. If nothing else, see it so that you'll understand why none of these characters are in any of the other movies. Because <laughs> well, going, not entirely going true. from Cornelius Planet of the Apes directly to Escape from the Planet of the Apes is kind of confusing. Yeah. I mean, Cornelius and Zira are in uh, three and four. Escape and a conquest. No. But... Oh, uh, conquest. Can we end? guys, I found the best ending. Well, I'm gonna send this to you. This is the best way to end this. Are we gonna sing? No. Oh, yeah. That's uh. From you the... should do that. You should do that, Uncle Milkshake. Okay. Let us. Well, let's wait. Pray. Let me do the closeout. Any any last thoughts? I think we've spoken a lot about this film more than anyone's ever spoken about it. I do want to mention I, I looked around on a Google, and I found if you're a big Planet of the Apes fan, uh, some fan group made a radio drama based on Beneath Planet of the Apes that you can download and listen to. Cool. Oh my God, that's cool. Yeah. Got to throw up a link and, in the show notes. I, yeah, right. And I, I think it's based on like earlier drafts of the script that leaked online somehow. Or maybe the novelization's a bit different. I don't know. But um. Man, imagine, imagine Planet of the Apes soap operas. But so much of Planet of the Apes is visual. Just seeing people as apes is pretty funny. There's something very comic about how it looks in the older movies. I, I love that look. But uh, okay, so ready for me to close this out? Well, I was yeah. wondering if I could hype something. Sure, what do you got to plug, Thrasher? Okay, well, here, here's here's what I have to plug. Thank you very much. And I'm, oh, I'm sorry to say uh, it hasn't been released yet due to some delays with another project, uh, but I have produced a series of uh, cardstock miniatures for uh, role-playing games and, to a certain extent, tabletop strategy games, which does tie into this. It's H.G. Wells' Morlocks who, as we all know, Morlocks are a far-future race who live beneath the ground and who have evolved and diverged significantly from common humanity. And there's our connection to Beneath the Planet of the Apes. So check it out. Hopefully it should be uh, it should be online as a download by the end of next month. Go to drivethroughrpg.com and look for H.G. Wells' Morlock Miniatures from Skirmisher Publishing, LLC, by me. Thrasher. Now, now, what is what is a miniature? What do you mean? Well, by the that? miniature, what what it is, um, is that there, uh, you you buy these and you print them out, and it's a sheet with sixteen different Morlocks on them, and you cut out the Morlocks, fold them up, and you get a standing figure that's both the front side and the back side of each individual Morlock. Thrasher, you should do a set of monkeys. Uh, inter- actually, uh, interestingly enough, there is an Ape Man miniature that uh, Skirmisher is going to be doing in the near future. Um, you can look for that. Uh, you can look for the Ape Man miniature in uh, the premiere issue of D Infinity. What is D Infinity? Uh, D Infinity. D Infinity is a uh, 
is a quarterly multi-platform game supplement that Skirmisher Publishing is working on, and they're getting contributions from a bunch of different game authors and a bunch of different gaming companies. And it's trying to cover gaming in the broadest possible sense. It will have information about role-playing games. It will have information about board games, conventions, tournaments, LARPing, costuming. The goal of D-Infinity is to, is to be as broad as possible on the subject of gaming. That if you are involved in some aspect of any gaming hobby, there will be something in each volume of this, of this supplement for you. And one of the things it is going to have are previews and special variants of the uh, cardstock miniatures that uh, Skirmisher Publishing releases. And so, yes, the first, uh, the first volume will not only have uh, cardstock, uh, will not only have the cardstock uh, Ape Warrior miniature, it will also have a special variant Morlock miniature, which is not available in the set, which will be available for download. And uh, the first, uh, the, the preview issue of D-Infinity is going to be available on free RPG day. Cool, very cool. Uh, okay, so if you want to check out the website of SequelCast, go to SequelCast.com. Visit the Twitter feed at Twitter.com slash SequelCast. Send us an email at SequelCast at Gmail.com. And um, next time around, we're going to... The next episode, we're going to review the third film in the Planet of the Apes series, Escape from the Planet of the Apes. So this is Uncle Milkshake. Thrasher. And Skipper Maddox saying, May the blessings of the Bomb Almighty and the fellowship of the Holy Fallout descend upon us all this day and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Is that what they say in the film? No. Oh. That's what they said in Mystery Science Theater 3000. <laughs> <laughs>